you wanted the best, you've got the best podcast. The hottest, hottest. podcast in the world. In the world. The Chris Voss Show, the preeminent podcast with guests so smart you may experience serious brain bleed. The CEOs, authors, thought leaders, visionaries, and motivators. Get ready, get ready. Strap yourself in. Keep your hands, arms, and legs inside the vehicle at all times because you're about to go on a monster education roller coaster with your brain. Now, here's your host, Chris Voss. Hi, folks. This is Voss here from the ChrisVossShow.com. The ChrisVossShow.com. Welcome to the big show, my family and some friends. For 14 years and 1,400 episodes, we've been doing this show. There's two to three shows a day, so please refer the show to your family, friends, and relatives. YouTube.com forward slash Chris Voss. You get Goodreads.com forward slash Chris Voss. And uh, LinkedIn.com forward slash Chris Voss. And check us out over there TikTok. We're trying to be uh, cool over there. And it's not working because we're old. Uh, anyway, guys, we have an amazing u.s navy captain on the show with us today and uh, he's going to be telling you uh his amazing story uh what he's written in his book about leadership life loyalty from a maverick navy captain and uh in a little bit of backstory on this you've likely heard of this gentleman uh he was in the news for a little bit and he's probably been in the news probably all of his life but he was in the news kind of bigly as they say i don't know who says bigly um <clears throat> But there was like this little thing that happened around 2020, and it was like a, a, a what do they call that thing? Oh, a pandemic. <laughs> you may have seen it come down the pike there, as it were. And uh, and uh, there were some people getting this uh, flu called the, uh, what was it? The, oh, it's called the COVID. Yeah, you may have heard of that. It's kind of funny. I go to the store now. No one walks around mess. Anyway, we have uh, Captain Brett. Crozier on the show with us today. He is the author of the newest book that's coming out, Surf When You Can, which always reminds me of Apocalypse Now, that scene with uh, Robert Duvall. Uh, and it comes out June 13th, 2023. Surf When You Can, Lessons in Life, Loyalty, and Leadership from a Maverick Navy Captain. Brett Crozier uh, joins us on the show today. And uh, he grew up in California. Of course, it's a beautiful place to grow up with a son there. He graduated from the United States Navy. <laughs> I try to say na Navy for na Naval. So there you go. I need to watch my Naval more often. Uh, the United States Naval Academy. And he embarked on a 30-year career in the Navy, flying dozens of combat missions over Iraq and leading at the highest levels of operational command. He served as the commanding officer of a combat fa-18 strike fighter squadron the world's largest and most advanced communications ship and ultimately the uss theodore roosevelt before retiring from the navy in 2022 this is his first book and welcome to the show brett how are you i'm doing great chris thanks uh thanks for the exciting intro and, and quick bio there well you've had you've led an exciting life you know so so you've got that going on <laughs> yeah it's it's uh it's been fun I, and i you know i mean yeah. that it's i really enjoyed all my time in the navy and all the exciting things i got to do i don't i don't think i really had to grow up until i retired as my wife said and even now i'm trying to resist that urge to grow up and not do there exciting things anymore wives like that they, they you know there was you need to grow up and they, they get a lot of that but uh no i mean uh being a commanding officer of the uh, u.s the uss theodore roosevelt they don't let anybody drive those things like i've been applying but they're just like no yeah <laughs> yeah, I think I think you can go to Indeed and apply. I think there's some websites. Oh, can you? Yeah. Can you? Yeah. Is, do they have like volunteer commander for a day where That's I can right. just kind of go on there and be like, "Hey, let's uh, let's put this thing go up the thing." So, uh, give us a dot com, uh, sir, if you would, uh, of where you want people to find out more about you in the internet. Sure. Um, if you go to surfwhenyoucan.com, you'll you'll see links to the book and kind of the background, some pictures and videos, and I. One thing I also encourage people if they go to surfwhenyoucan.com is I list a couple nonprofits that I'm associated with. One that I work at full-time right now, taking care of homeless veterans, but others that are important. And I think it's always good to, to recognize folks out there that are serving in a different way than the military and, and I think helps out both your local and national community. But uh, surfwhenyoucan.com. There you go. Uh, it just brings back that Robert Duvall thing. I should have brought a soundboard of that. Uh, I don't know if I can legally do it without paying some money. But I should brought a soundboard of Charlie, don't surf. I can't do Robert Duvall, clearly. Uh, but uh, so what motivated you to write this book? 
Yeah. So after, I mean, after 30 years, you know, in the, doing something, in, in my case, the Navy, I mean, I, I graduated high school when I was 18, went to the Naval Academy, served 30 years. That's kind of what I knew. And, and there's, there's moments then to reflect on what you did, but I get first and foremost, I think I wrote the book to, to really thank all the men and women I served with over the years. Mm-hmm. Cause there's a lot of great relationships. You serve with incredible people from all over the country, all over the world in some cases. Um, you know, I've, made some great relationships. I just felt like if I wanted to thank one person for my time or those, you know, one thing would be all the people I served with because they, they made an incredible experience and I certainly learned more from them than, uh, than they probably learned from me. I also thought I learned a lot of cool stuff along the way, you know, just because I had a varied background from flying helicopters to fighters to driving ships, um, you know, to the whole pandemic thing. I, and, it allowed me to kind of think through some thoughts on what I think is important about leadership. And I wanted to share those to a broad audience outside the military as well. And, you know, I, I certainly tell my kids and family sea stories, but they pretty much get tired after about five minutes of those kind of stories. So I figured I needed to expand my audience. So I wanted to write, you know, second reason to write and share those stories. And then I think third, you know, for those that know about the COVID situation, the TR, I, I wanted to kind of dispel this, this myth that I was bitter or angry. You know, I was, I enjoyed my time in the military every single day. There's, there were hard days, don't get me wrong, but I learned from those hard days as well. And I couldn't have been, you know, more honored to serve for the full 30 years. And even after the TR and I, you know, after I left the ship, after the, the COVID pandemic struck our ship, um, I served for another two years. I continued to fly fighters and I felt like the Navy really took good care of me, um, particularly naval aviation. And, and I say that with, knowing that it's for me, it's a family business. My oldest son served as an air crewman, my middle sons, uh, in Pensacola and flight school. And, you know, my wife is, you know, the daughter of a Navy captain. So it's a family business for us. And I stayed as long, you know, I stayed to the end of the 30 years and, and was glad I did. And I want people to know that, you know, despite everything that happened and people followed in the news or not, I was still happy to be in the Navy and I was excited. They took good care of us and, and they really did up until the end. So, there you go. Well, let's lead off on that. What so what happened during this COVID time? Uh, give us a recap on, on what that uh, what what happened. There was something about some president guy who thought he was president for four years or something. And yeah, I'm just the doing jokes. Um, yeah, so we were like the rest of the world. We were trying to we being the Navy was trying to figure out how to deal with COVID and and how it was spreading and where it was spreading and the risks it presented to the various demographics and. We were at sea on deployment. We were operating in the South China Sea, near the Philippines, near Guam, near Vietnam. And at some point on that deployment, we we picked up uh, COVID. We had a couple of sailors that tested positive for COVID. And if you can imagine the environment on an aircraft carrier, for those that have never been, it's like high school or it's like college dorms, but packed in even more. So in some mm-hmm. cases you have 200 sailors in a single room, you know, wow. three three high and six feet apart. So it's not a great environment to have a pandemic that spreads as it did, as we know it did. And so we were doing all we could to try to mitigate the risk to the sailors and watching the numbers grow exponentially. We had a complete medical team on board. We had an epidemiology team on board. So we were able to really track it uh, scientifically as well. And, and the Navy was also trying to figure out what steps they could take uh, at the higher levels. So, and in the day I was frustrated because we weren't probably, getting the response we wanted. And I, and I knew everybody wanted what was best for the sailors, but, but I also knew nobody wanted it as much as I did as the captain of the ship. You are ultimately accountable for what happens on the ship. And, and I wanted to take care of what I knew was my number one priority as a leader, which was the sailors that, that, uh, that worked for me. So yeah. I wrote an email that, that basically addressed those concerns and tried to ask for help. And, and then, uh, and got, we got some help. It, it also got out to the, the public at large and mm-hmm. uh, nothing in it was unclassified, but it just created a little bit of a political dynamic. And, you know, when I sent the letter asking for help, I knew that I was, there was risk to my career. I knew I was rocking the boat as we say, but it, at that point it didn't matter. The priority was pretty clear for me. And then politically, obviously that caused some consternation as you go up the chain of command up to the, all the way up to the executive level. And, and eventually the decision was made to, to relieve me of command. So I left the ship and um, shortly thereafter, and there was some discussion about putting me back on the ship, but then eventually um, they came back and said, it's, you know, didn't make sense to put you back on the ship. And so I served for another two years and then retired just last year. There you go. Uh, and and the, the viral moment was watching you uh, leave your command of the ship and your crew uh, uh, standing up and applauding you as you left. 
I mean, what, what an yeah. epic moment for a leader. Yeah, definitely unexpected. Um, that was the end of the day of me packing and getting ready to depart the ship. And I think it was their way of, of thanking me for, mm -hmm. for basically sticking my neck out on their behalf. And I think it was also their way of saying, you know, Captain, we got this. You know, there's there's still a fight ahead. They were still going to have to fight through and figure out how to deal with this. But they, I think in some ways, were saying, Captain, we got it. You trained us well. And we're going to continue the fight. And we thank you for your sacrifice. There so you go. That was, it, was, it was a good moment. And I mean, the the book you've written details about loyalty, leadership, and life in your book. Uh, you know, I, I, I briefly learned a lot about uh, the military's leadership sort of stuff. We've had a few people from West Point on and on leadership and, and other great military uh, folks on. Uh, and our military has a way of teaching leadership and, uh, you know, all the different things. Uh, I'm thinking, trying to think of the Army's be no do. Is it be no? Is it be no do? No. Um, but they, the 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 aspect of what our military teaches when it comes to the quality of leadership, and and the way it builds leaders like yourself over tens of, of years, decades, um, really speaks to to uh, I, I, the, the greatness of what we do as a country. I mean, you can you can see the the joke that uh, uh, I forget the gentleman's name, but he he recently said that Russia. And we thought Russia had the second best military in the in the world, and now we found that the second best military in the Ukraine. Um, <laughs> I thought that was a punch in the gut, but uh, and appropriately so. But you know, uh, we built a great leadership thing, and and so there you are. You're on a ship. Uh, you've got you know this is this is a big deal. All the ships, you know, even that start with the cruise ships, but any of these ships that are out there. Once this 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 little plague was going on, and for those listening this year's uh, from now, there was no, uh, there was no vaccine back then. In fact, we didn't even really understand it much, but for our enemies to know that, Hey, there's a ship out there that could be, you know, uh, that could have problems or multiple ships where we can't uh, defend or protect or, or be aggressive on what we need to do and hold the line. Uh, that's a very dangerous position for the security of America and, and our allies. Yeah, I, I think, and I, I try to be clear too when I when I asked for assistance was that you know let's make no mistake. I mean that if called upon, we would man the ship and we would get to sea and we would fight and defeat our enemies. I, I had no doubt about that. And mm -hmm. um, and the, and the question is, you know, what point? You know, it's, this now comes down to operational risk management and how you make that decision. What type of decision you make based on whether you're at peace or you're at war. And and anyone in the military knows when you sign up and the day you you know set foot in boot camp or academy or commissioning source. The potential to go to war is there. That's you know you shouldn't mm -hmm. think that that's not the case. And when you're in war, your risk calculus, your you know risk decisions are much different than they are when you're at peace. Um, mm -hmm. and I think that's important. We we take a lot of steps. We do a lot of things all the time to mitigate risk from silly things like, you know, you have to wear a reflective belt if you're going to run anytime. You know, that's you know within an hour of sunrise or sunset or. And or if you're going to step on a ladder that's more than three feet high, you better have a helmet on. And so those are those are risk decisions we make because we want to mitigate that. Um, so when, when we were looking at COVID, I think you know we had to address it appropriately, and we yeah had to acknowledge that there was some public information getting was getting out there. You know when a, when a carry pulls into port, it's not a secret to anybody, right? There's not a James Bond <laughs> underground location you pull in. They're um, a little big. Those ships, pretty big. Yeah. And every every sailor has a cell phone, so it's oh. not like you know you can't you know. And so one of the things we were dealing with was, was information that was getting out from every sailor that was on the deck, flight deck, or hangar bay, calling home, texting home, because we were pier side and cell coverage, and um, and so in in that regards, we were trying to manage the information to make sure it was understood that the risk, how we wanted to handle it, um, mm -hmm. and and so I don't you know I don't think there was undue risk to our security as we talk about, because again, it, it would, you know, we would have clearly just manned up and gone to sea and fought and, and defeated, to be honest, any enemy that would try to take advantage of those moments. There you go. Um, so, you know, this, this whole thing gets political and, and those people, you know, we have people still watching our videos from 14 years ago. The, the thing that people need to remember about this is that uh, there was a bit of uh, squashing of information and trying to spin stuff. You know, at one point, some idiot was telling somebody they should use bleach uh, to squash the thing. Uh, and there was some horse tranquilizer stuff, I think, too. There was a lot of misinformation going on, and, and it seemed like there was a lot of containment. I think that's been well documented. 
Acumen and a lot of the Washington Post yeah. people we've had on. Um, and, and denial, I think, is the word I was looking for, too. And so a lot of this was going on. So you coming out and writing this letter as a leader saying, I care about my people. I have responsibility to them. We need some more help here. This this uh, this kind of uh, shook some of those people that were trying to uh, create some denial or or kind of tamp down on on how bad this situation really was. Is that a, is that a good assessment? Yeah, I, I, you know, and I and there's obviously complex decisions being made, and and there's mm -hmm. pressures at the executive level that I can only imagine. But when you try to limit information and try to control information, what you mm -hmm. do is you put barriers in place. And if whether you're running a country or you're running a nonprofit or a corporate you know, kind of level, if you're squashing information or you're putting up barriers that means you're not as a leader going to get the truth, you're not going to be able to make the right decisions and you're going to make these barriers such that, you know, you know, you want people to bring you information, right? So mm -hmm. good companies, in my opinion, not only encourage, but they expect you to bring truth and information to decision-making processes. Bad organizations tend to try to squash it. They try to limit it. And in the end, the question is, how can you make a good decision if you don't have all the information? And I think that's kind of where we found ourselves is that there was a lot of effort to control information, squash information, spin it as it were. And, and that was going to potentially lead to some catastrophic decisions. And that was our biggest worry on the ship was that that kind of hesitancy to look at the truth might mean that we're not going to get the help we needed. In that case, yeah. that would put undue risk to the, the crew that, that I was responsible for. And as a leader, you're you're responsible for the lives of your people. You care about your people. Yeah. Uh, you 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 know. I mean, th this thing was killing people. It's still there's still people going through long COVID. Um, wh what is it like to have the president of the United States suddenly take a bend on you and 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 decide he doesn't <laughs> like uh, he doesn't like you asking for help to save uh, the people in your command? Well, I mean, I guess everybody's entitled to their opinion. Uh, <laughs> I thought I love your perspective. I, I took, um, I, I guess I, what I really liked was he made some, uh, there were some at the executive level made some <clears throat> comments about me writing as if I was Hemingway. And, and I just hope that my high school English teacher heard that, that the president <laughs> of the United States compared my writing. Cause I think I deserve a higher grade um, on that paper. I turned in as a senior. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Well, you have to remember, I think, uh, I think someone says he reads at a fourth grade level if he can read it all. Uh, but, uh, enough of that. So <laughs> I'm going to people write me and hate me. Uh, but they're like, why are you throwing shade at, uh, anyway, yeah. enough jokes aside about that. So yeah, you mentioned something I thought was interesting that you came away from that without being resentful, without having issues with it. I would be a little pissed off. Like, how do you, how do you manage that? How do you square that? And, and how do you resolve that in your mind as to what took place and relieving you of your command and, and the people you care for? Well, I, so I, I knew, I knew when I sent the email and, and again, it wasn't in a vacuum and I sent it, you know, after a lot of conversations and analysis with the medical team and the folks on board. But I, when I sent the email, I knew that that was one of the risks. So in the end, I don't think I was surprised by the outcome. It wasn't the outcome I wanted personally, mm -hmm. but it was got us the outcome we wanted, which was the assistance for the sailors that we were trying to get in proper quarters to take care of them so that we could reduce mm -hmm. the spread. Um, so I, in that regard, I guess, you know, it was of the things that could happen. It was one of the things I knew could probably happen. So mm -hmm. um, I, in that way, I was prepared for it. But I also kind of believe that, you know, you can, you can't control what happens to you, but you can control how you react, kind of that stoic wisdom. And, stoic and I, wisdom. I'm, a, I'm mm -hmm. a big believer in that. And I, I think mm -hmm. at the end of the day, there was nothing to be gained by me reacting. It wasn't going to change the situation. And I've been in enough life or death situations in combat and other places that where, you know, you learn how to kind of keep your emotions in check and try to perform to your utmost level. This was just an extension of it. I wasn't, I wasn't, it wasn't a life or death situation for me. It had been to the crew, but we had started to get the help we needed. So now we're just talking professionally. My, my career changed a little bit and, and my current job changed as I left the ship. So, mm. And it was a great job. Don't get me wrong. Like it was the best job I've had in my life and probably ever will have. I got to fly a helicopter one day, go launch off my own ship to fly a super Hornet fighter the next day, go down and help, you know, watch them start up the reactor the next day. There's so many things that I could go around kind of in my leadership style. And then I could be on the bridge, helping drive the ship through the South China sea with Chinese ships, you know, a mile away. Mm -hmm. So it was exciting. It was fun. You had a lot of influence. It's a $10 billion aircraft carrier with a lot of responsibility. I loved it. And so, if anything, I was disappointed only knowing that 
you know, the best job I'd had, the job I loved, um, was no more. But at the end of the day, I mean, it was going to end at some point, And I knew that if it had to end for any reason uh, shortly, then it would be doing it for the right reason, which is why in the end, I think I felt okay with it. And, then there you go. and I think still the Navy probably reacted and, and maybe gave you guys what you needed. Yeah, I think it, I definitely think it broke down some barriers. Um, mm -hmm. There was a lot of discussions about various options, but mm -hmm. the one that we were recommending as the only viable option is certainly the the path that we took. And so we got the help we needed. But um, so there's, yeah, there's a lesson about communication there and truth to power and the importance of speaking up, I think, when things are not going as, as you'd like and and accepting that, you know, they might shoot the messenger, but oh, well, at least, at least you're getting the right decisions and the right people that are having to make some of these big decisions. And that that decision at the time was well beyond my capability. It was, it revolved political levels of government that, that I obviously mm -hmm. was not part of. So, Hi, folks. Here's Foz here with a little station break. Hope you're enjoying the show so far. We'll resume here in a second. Uh, I'd like to invite you to come to my coaching speaking and training courses website. You can also see our new podcast over there at chrisvossleadershipinstitute.com. Over there, you can find all the different stuff that we do for speaking engagements, if you'd like to hire me, uh, training courses that we offer, and coaching for leadership, management, entrepreneurism, uh, podcasting, corporate stuff. Uh, with over 35 years of experience in business and running companies as a CEO, and be sure to check out Chris Voss Leadership institute.com now back to the show you know but I, I think this speaks again to uh leadership uh and and the the quality people that our military uh teaches and brings up you know being able to take one for the team i was just uh what was i listening to earlier i was listening to some different audiobooks but being able to um you know, risk yourself over the, over the people that you're leading and stuff. There's, there's something about that and yeah. there's a benevolence to it. There's probably some other better words I can think of, but, um, um, you know, it's, it, it's something that people, uh, have to look at as a leader. You have to, you have to be more concerned about other people than yourself. It's not a, it's not a, it's not all about me sort of position, or at least it shouldn't be. And you mentioned stoicism. One of the things I read every morning is Seneca, Epictetus, Marcus Aurelius, in fact, sitting right off the screen so that I see it every day when I'm looking at the screen. Um, and, and some of these stoic principles are just so important, especially probably from a military aspect of dealing right. with, you know, when you're in these theaters that are active, you're in war, you're in danger, you know, that you just, you just don't go running off emotionally like i would i just run off screaming pretty much most of the time <laughs> uh so you you entitled the book surf when you can what does that mean what's the what's the uh thing behind that well i do love to surf so in fairness to that i, I try to surf as much as i can and uh and for various reasons one i think my love of surfing or anything activity wise outdoors is is my way to have a good life work balance and i think any leader needs to have some kind of balance in their life for many reasons. One, I think you're healthier when you do. And if you're healthier, you, you just work better and you can work, you know, that's, so we, 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 I think we all know now if you're the healthier you are, the better you're going to be able to work and lead and, and make mm -hmm. decisions. Definitely. But I also and think, you, mm -hmm. yeah, I was going to say, I, it's also because you also need a time to think. So kind of go back to the discussion mm -hmm. about, you know, stoic wisdom, you know, these are some great philosophers that it took the time to think and write down. And oftentimes as leaders nowadays, we're so overwhelmed with, texts and tweets and phone calls and emails and and i think it's very easy to to get focused on these what we call the tactical level in the military and a true leader should be taking a step back and looking strategically on um, the organization you know where do they need to go what big decisions need to be made from a revenue generation standpoint how do you take care of your employees or your sailors and that takes time to think those aren't things you mm -hmm. can think of in between emails or between you know watching stuff on your phone so Surfing for me is not only a way to have a good life work balance, but it's a way for me to think and there step away from it all. Because if, if you're caught with a phone on the on the lineup out on the surfboard, you're probably going to be shunned. Uh, so you don't <laughs> you generally don't have anything out there to communicate other than you know yelling at the guy next to you and, and hanging out in the surf. So that's 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 why I chose the title of the book and why it's important. And and now you know I and I tried throughout my career to, to find that balance, and I still today continue to try to work on that. 
Yeah, it's a little hard to uh, surf TikTok when you're like on the board going back and forth <laughs> and dodging the yeah. sharks. So, uh, what 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 made you attracted to the water? What made you attracted to get in the Navy? What tell us a little bit about your orange or, your origin story? Origin and I imagine story. and I imagine this is kind of a memoir, right, for people. Yeah, I think it's. I try to tell a story of my career th really through the people I met and the people I learned from, and and I throw sea stories in from combat and peacetime and and sometimes staff work and and i i think if there's one way to say it it's a story it's a memoir but it's really not like i don't talk about you know me growing up directly i talk about what i learned along the way through different stories so it's what i really want to do is introduce the reader to a bunch of people i met throughout my career and then through that kind of tell the lessons i learned and, and in some cases i'm relating a story that took place when i was playing baseball as a young kid and other times it's you know, somewhere, someone I met when I was more senior and, and told me the importance of like teamwork and in a way that, mm -hmm. I, that resonated with me. Um, so, but, but my origin story, as it were, my dad was in the air force. So, um, that clearly meant I was going to go a different direction just because I wanted to be the rebel that I was, but, <laughs> um, but he, you know, he, he only did a few years and, but it was enough to plant the seed because, um, I got to be around airplanes at a very young age and mm -hmm. fell in love with aviation and remember as a young kid, buying a book on military jets so fast forward that was my my goal as a young kid is to fly airplanes the faster the louder the better which generally meant the military mm -hmm. so i was leaning towards the air force and then a small movie came out in 1986 that uh some people remember but you know suddenly i learned by watching top gun when i was 16 and also ah. learned to drive at the same time that lo and behold the navy actually does some pretty cool things in aviation so that mm -hmm. that sent me towards the naval academy and on a path in aviation and and I was the kid when I was, you know, if you had sent me to flight school when I was 16, I would have skipped college and gone right to flight school. That's all I wanted. And luckily I had smarter parents than I and made sure I got the college degree that was required and was able to get to the Naval Academy and, and loved it. And so that's why I joined. But I told people I didn't stay for flying. I, as much as I love flying and I flew helicopters and fighters and um, I, I really, I stayed for the people. Um mm -hmm. I stayed for the people I met and the people I got to serve with. And that is, it's an incredible group of selfless people from all over the country, in some cases, the world that serve in our military. And, and that was, that was what I enjoyed the most was meeting them, learning from them. Uh, but it was cool to go jump on a jet occasionally and take off from a carrier or land on the back of a carrier. So those, those were exciting moments that kept me going as well. Yeah. You've got the multifaceted, you know, you got the boats and you got the planes and you got all the gear and you can do everything. In fact, I think we have uh, hazard Lee's on the show with us. I think today or tomorrow, okay, uh, U.S. Yeah. air force combat pilot and instructor, his book, the art of clear thinking. Um, yeah. and we'll have yours between the uh, thing here in the final show. But, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, what an extraordinary thing, but the leadership principles that, that they teach in our military just extraordinary and i didn't really understand i mean i knew they're a big deal but watching the military structure of the russians and like their whole weird yeah. system of of hierarchy and then seeing it just fail miserably uh is, is really been interesting to see how that how that plays out and how somehow we've gotten it right yeah and i think if you study in depth on the differences between the two we really believe in delegation right i mean colin mm -hmm. powell said you you delegate so you're uncomfortable and then you delegate some more and mm -hmm. i think what he meant is if you train folks well and you empower them then you let them go off and make the decisions they need to in those environments as an aviator at a young rank i would sign for an airplane and i would be entrusted to take off and fly well beyond the range of the carrier and and i'd have live ordnance on the on the jet and i I would be making life or death decisions at times mm. and that at a very young age. And I think what you find in many other services or, you know, like the Russians as an example, they don't train the same way. So they're much more controlled and much more, you know, hierarchical and you don't do anything unless you get permission. And that really slows down a, certainly a military, particularly in combat, if you're waiting for approval to do anything. Yeah. And if you're in the corporate world, I'd argue the same thing. And I see in the nonprofit world, if people are waiting for permission all the time, well, they're just, it just slows down. It's just mucking up the wheels. And that's not how you want an organization to run if you're trying to be nimble and make good, quick decisions so you can move forward. So I think there's a balance there. And, and I, I think you're right to your earlier point. The military and the U.S. military trains people very well, um, both tactically and, and technically, you know, as required, but also from a leadership standpoint. From the moment I entered the academy to the day I left, there's, there's always discussions about leadership. And 
people tend to think the military is all about discipline and, you know, and how early can you get up? How much do you need to work out? How long can you go without sleep? That's an element and that's an important element in any military organization. But, but the U.S. military also trains well to understand the importance of servant leadership. And that comes down to taking care of your people. And that's you know, what I think I want to make sure people understand is, and that's kind of what I write about in the book, is there's a softer side of leadership that is as essential as being about discipline and hard work and, you know, and, and holding people accountable. You have to ha- know how to communicate. You have to understand culture. You have to understand teamwork and, and the strength of that in any organization. So as a leader, if you're only focused on the hard right side of discipline and, you know, and, and go without sleep, you're probably not doing as well as you can. And the organization certainly is not. But I think as leaders, no matter what your line of work, those softer skills of knowing how to relate, how to communicate, how to build teamwork is really essential to your success. And I see that now in the nonprofit world. I think it's mm-hmm. even in the nonprofit world that people join not to get rich, but for some higher kind of cause. Um, you still need to take care of them. You still need to find ways to, to you know, encourage that teamwork and encourage that cooperation. And, and you're way more effective when you do it right. Yeah, it's it's, it's uh, leadership is such a hard thing to teach because some people think from a management aspect. They're like, well, I'm just the boss. I got a title and whatever. But you have to win the hearts and minds of your people. I mean, you can't just you can't just get the title and people are like, well, we'll, we'll respect that guy, I guess. Um, you've got to win their hearts and minds. You've got to touch souls and and uh, motivate people. And it's not it's not just about barking orders at people, right? Yeah, you have to inspire them. You want them to mm-hmm. inspire, inspire them. And if they're inspired, they will work better and they'll work harder and they'll be more effective. And that's, mm-hmm. that's what leaders, that's what leadership's about to me is how do you inspire them to be greater than the sum of the parts and how do you get the most out of your organization? Uh, mm-hmm. And that's not sitting behind a computer answering emails or looking at spreadsheets. It's actually, in some cases, getting out there, talking to people, understanding the culture and how you can make it better and how you can help them achieve their goals. Yeah. It's it's amazing to me how people will follow certain leaders and and won't follow others and and what appeals to them and what makes a difference uh, in in uh, connecting with people and I, I, I some people talk about what's called they call it the emotion emotional quotient or emotional intelligence that leaders should have what do what do you think about that phrase emotional intelligence do do leaders need to have an emotional intelligence. I think you need emotional awareness. Maybe I think mm. intelligence implies you have it or you don't. And, and some yeah. people are, have it. It's easier for them than others. Mm. I think you need emotional you know, awareness, meaning that you need to understand emotionally what is motivating the people that work for you. And, and how you get that awareness is different for everybody. Um, mm. You know, whether you're an extrovert or introvert, it doesn't matter if your goal is awareness, then how do you get that? Is that, is that doing a lot of one-on-ones with your employees or your directors? Mm-hmm. Or is it, you know, are you more extroverted and you can get a group of folks together and kind of talk and pontificate and motivate them that way? But I think you, it comes down to really how do you communicate and how do you listen? And I think anyone that has, you know, high emotional awareness, it's probably, in, in, or ultimately intelligence, it's because they probably learn how to listen mm-hmm. at a young age and they just know to listen, to try to understand the situation from the person they're talking to, vice just trying to, you know, put my direction on you or make sure you're, you understand my goals. I, I want to know your goals. I want to know what that person's motivated by. And that's ah, different for everybody. Yeah. That, and that's really important because, you know, it's that difference between being a manager where you're more concerned about your goals and, and a leader, uh, you know, let me ask you this. I had somebody argue with me one time. Uh, you know, I've been a CEO of my company since I was 18. I hope I understand somewhat some, something about leadership. Um, but I had a manager argue with me once about, leading from the front does a leader lead from the front or does a leader lead from behind well you know in the military they like to say you lead from the front but clearly if you're a senior leader you're not on the front line as it were mm-hmm. because you're trying to be in the position where you can make the best decision mm-hmm. um and i think you need to show that you anything you're asking them to do that you understand that risk and you've you either go. done it before or you can but arguably you know if you're a leader needed to make big strategic decisions or even tactical decisions, you know, look at the military scenario. If you're there with a gun in hand at the front line, you're not probably paying attention to all the other information out there to make the right decisions on where you want the organization to go. Mm-hmm. So, you know, some of the great corporate leaders, they're not necessarily on the assembly line turning wrenches. They might go do it occasionally, but they have, you have to be in a, the right position to 
again, come down to have that emotional awareness. And, and that doesn't mean you have to be the person in the front. However, I think when you see, there's a good balance there and, you know, the idea that leaders eat last is important. You know, I don't like mm-hmm. to, especially on a ship where you have a lot of, in the Navy, with a lot of tradition, it's easy to have stovepipe areas where you're going to eat and different foods and stuff. And, you know, and I saw, particularly from the Marines, um, and General Mattis was a good example of this, is, you know, that he'd walk into a chow hall and, he'd, and they'd want to make him a beeline for the front of the line and mm-hmm. get his food and sit down. And he and many others have always said, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wait till I make sure that my crew the people I'm entrusted to take care of eat first. So that's mm-hmm. kind of the difference I think is, you know, be willing to do whatever you ask your people to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's important, but I also think that as a leader, you probably make some cases your best decisions if you're stepping back and looking at the big picture. There you go. It's your, it's people first, man. That's, that's what you're saying. I mean, and, and, and people see that uh, in you as a leader. I mean, the one thing I talked about in my book, Beacons of Leadership, is you send forth that beacon uh, from a lighthouse as a leader that, that communicates, you know, your ethics, your values. And if you're, if you're making PR, <laughs> you know, PR issues of, hey, the company's morals are this, and you're operating uh, against those morals in the opposite way. Yeah. And like, hey, we're a trusted organization. Meanwhile, I'm ripping money off out of the company. Um, people see that, and they go, hey, this this guy's, you know, as George Carlin used to say, he's full of shit. Um, so it, I, I love how that uh, sort of mantra is in there. And so a lot of people are going to learn about leadership and running organizations, I think, from your book. Does that sound about right? Yeah, I hope it, you know, I hope there's folks in the military that like it just because they have some good sea stories they might be part of. But I try to write, again, to a broad audience in a way that, you know, whether you ever spend a day in the military or not, the lessons, the things I were taught along the way, and what I think is a great learning environment for leadership in the military that they'll take that with them in the corporate world or the nonprofit world or just their day-to-day, you know, world. Cause I think there's lessons in there. Not, you know, it's, it's leadership, it's life. It's, you know, I'm not teaching how to surf in the book. So if you're picking it up, I think you're going to surf, but I'll tell you, you know, it's, I think <laughs> what? find your, find whatever it is for you is surfing, right? That's the, that's the, that, that's in book two, evidently. Uh, book how two, to surf. If I do. Well, that's right. <laughs> I'm going to part um, <laughs> there you go out of surf i mean I, hey i i i wish i'd learned to surf i'm not sure i can learn to surf now at my old age and my bad knees and and so maybe i need to lose a little bit more weight but uh i'm definitely shark material uh so you know they're gonna see me and they're gonna be like well uh let's go for that so you know when you're skinny like you guys you know you they're they're gonna be like that's yeah. just all bones we're not gonna mess with that <laughs> but me they would definitely be like hey it's lunchtime um yeah. You know, we've we've had lots of uh, uh, military folks on the show, and we've talked about PTSD and you know high high suicide for military officers, especially veterans. It's it's shocking to me how how you know it, we have we have people that we've trained in leadership and they're running billion dollar planes and stuff you know we've sent them to run billion dollar planes but they they position out of the military and they and they struggle to find jobs or works you know uh, homeless veterans etc and suicide veterans as well what what can we do better as american people to support the military better understand them more and try and uh, support veterans better yeah, it's a, it's a great question. That's what I do now in the nonprofit world as I run um, Veterans Village of San Diego. We focus on homeless veterans and, and veterans that have struggled um, transitioning, whether it's mental health or drug abuse or um, or just employment stuff. And, and we serve about 3,000 veterans and their families uh, every year. But it's beyond just the veterans that I'm talking about that I see every day. It's It applies to anybody really transitioning from the military, it's, you're coming from a way of life. It's, it's not just a job. Um, and I even see that, you know, in my, in my nonprofit work where things I take for granted or things I say from my military time where I would never think twice about it. I say it now and they're, you know, I, like the example would be PT. I said, told somebody the other day, I'm going to go PT. And they're like, what does that mean? Physical therapy? I'm like, no, I'm going to go do physical training. They're like, oh, I've never heard that before. And on my mind, I'm like, well, that's, there's a good reminder that, you know, not mm-hmm. everybody speaks the same language. So, I think if you're an employer, I think if you, you get a veteran, you get somebody with military background, you're going to get somebody that works extremely hard, very focused on the mission and still learning what that means. But 
that will overcome any other stuff he or she might be going through. I think it's worth it, even if they don't speak the language, even if, you know, I, I ran a $10 billion aircraft carrier. It doesn't mean that I run a $10 billion corporate budget. Those are different things and you do them different ways. But mm-hmm. there's a lot of good skills that you bring to the military. And I think, I think the civilian side should to do what they can to help them out. And one, because I think it's beneficial to your company. I think any veteran you hire will be, be value added in many ways and ways you probably don't even anticipate. Um, but then for the veterans that struggle or the veterans that, you know, get into drugs or they suffer from serious mental health problems, we do want to help them. And I think that's where the nonprofit world and the VA and different experts of the government can come in to help. And, and I would encourage anybody, um, to get involved in that, you know, volunteer, whether it's once a week, once a month, I actually try to volunteer throughout my entire career, like it with Habitat for Humanity or different things based on where I lived. And now I, you know, I do it uh, full time, but, but I think everybody would learn from it. And you could take the homeless situation as an example. We all see it depending where you live. It's, it's greater than other places and it's a complex problem and it's easy to discount it and just kind of write it off as the city's problem or the county's problem. But but everyone can make a difference. And I think that regardless if you have any experience um, with veterans, if you know, whether it's a veteran homeless or a non-veteran homeless program or any nonprofit, I think, I think there's a lot to be gained from it. And you get to learn about folks that sign up to serve their country and just somehow tripped and stumbled as they came out or years after they left the military. And, and I think we owe it to them to try to help them out and get back on their feet. Yeah. My friends that have cycled in and out of tours of duty, you know, they've, they've struggled with, you know, the, the loss of the band of brothers, the loss of, 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 you know, Hey, Chris, when I'm in Iraq, I got, I got people on my back, you know, they are, they have my back. I'm alone here. Like, and nobody, nobody's going to cover me. Nobody's going to back me up. I, you know, when I'm there, I'm in the action, I'm in the juice, but I also have that band of brothers. Well, what if the, what if there was like a military social media network that would help you know, just from the military yeah. and, and ex-military, probably won't, not for current military because, you know, maybe somebody share some secret, I don't know, you know, some weird stuff and go on. Somebody say something and get in trouble. Um, but you know, maybe for ex-veterans to have that virtual band of brothers. I don't know. There's an idea. Yeah, there's, and there, there are. I mean, that's what's great about, you know, the internet and, and there's a lot mm-hmm. of communities out there they can be part of. There's a lot of great organizations that are national, like whether it's Hiring Our Heroes or, even, I mean, the VA itself is a network that takes care of veterans that, uh, that might be a need. But I, I do, I think that's the one thing you do, to your point about Band of Brothers. You come from this organization that faces high-risk operations, life-or-death operations. It develops a lot of trust, um, you know, to the point, you know, you're, what you said is you know someone's got your back. It's life or death. So you're looking for that same kind of sense of teamwork and camaraderie, and you're probably not going to ever find it like you did yeah. when you're in the military because you're ideally not doing life or death stuff now if you go first responder may, maybe you'll you'll find that in the you know police force or fire department or something like that but in general if you go to a c- corporate world or you know business world um you're probably not going to ever get that same sense of trust and that's sometimes disheartening and sometimes makes people uncomfortable because they just don't know where they fit in because of that um i think they figure out over time they also you know tend to then ideally have a strong family or network to your point that they can leverage and reach out to to help help fill that void there you go. More support for our veterans. You know, we, we live in a time that's kind of interesting where we've had peacetime for a long time up until the, uh, the Iraq war uh, with Russia. Um, and, and it seems like a lot of Americans kind of started taking the military for granted and veterans for granted and, and not even like realizing the, the you know, the, the, the sacrifice that, that people make. I mean, you're putting your life on your line. It's not like you guys are out there just eating donuts and Doritos hanging out and shaking saber out at people. It's a big deal to cut that line in the sand and let everybody know that, you know, we can, we can go at a moment's notice if you don't, if everyone doesn't keep in line and mind their manners. Yeah. I mean, I think you're speaking to like the fatigue as a nation that we have after now decades of conflict. I think, you know, I go back to nine 11 and 2001 and, and the sense of pride and camaraderie we felt at all levels of the, government and certainly across the country and it was um an interesting time and but then you fast forward 20 years later i think people have got fatigued i don't think people discount veterans or you know i think there's a lot of great programs that didn't exist 20 years ago i think there's a lot more effort put into trying to place veterans in the right kind of company i so i think that we've we've done a good job of continuing to take care of veterans and active duty for that matter as a country and fund them appropriately 
But I, I think we've gotten fatigued with our maybe our foreign policy is the, where we kind of try to draw that delineation. Well, I think we're all tired of being at war. I mean, you join the military, you know you might have to fight, but you don't necessarily want to do that every day. You're not, you know, you're, you actually like the idea of being strong but not having to use it and kill people. But mm -hmm. 20 years of, of foreign policy that's kept us in a place that we thought we were only going to be for months, people are fatigued. The nation's fatigued, both yeah. financially, politically, um, you know, emotionally. And so my hope is that people continue to support the veterans and the active duty military and those that sign up to serve. Um, but then, then take their frustration towards foreign policy, which is really where I think people get concerned and, and then take that to the ballot box. And, and that's, that's your way to influence that. And, um, so far I think we've done a good job of delineating the two, but over time you get worried this will not. And military becomes more of a stovepipe caste system where people serve because their parents served and not, beyond that and that's that's not where we want to be either i think as a nation definitely we need to definitely respect the sacrifice that people make and i think we just had memorial day um let me ask you this we had uh, uh don ben bentley on the show he's the, one of the writers for the tom clancy series and he i believe he talked about how uh you know the navy of of china is bigger than ours where you mentioned the uh, south china sea issues uh, earlier um and, and I think he said to me a statistic that kind of blew my mind. He said that their Navy is growing at the rate of the Australian Navy like every year or something, which is kind of weird if you, you know, you know everything that's going on in that theater. What are your thoughts on that? As a Navy, are we going to be able to compete with them? Do we need to elect more leaders to throw more money at that? Or what, what, well, think, do you have any uh, thoughks on that you want to bring Yeah, up? no, it's, it's a complex problem. I think yeah. uh, I'm a big believer in... And peace through strength, meaning that the stronger our military is, the less likely we'll actually go have conflict because we'll make the outcomes of those decisions so untenable by our adversaries that they won't even want to consider it. Um, the challenge becomes then, can you can we keep up with the, the Chinese Navy specifically? They're building fast. They're learning fast. I think yeah. we still have decades of experience ahead of them in terms of mm -hmm. how you operate, how you fight. Um you know, we had uh, Chinese nationals on a, sh in our, on a ship many years ago here in San Diego, and, and they were fascinated by not just the technology and the stuff we would show them, which is all, you know, unclassified stuff, obviously. But they're also very fascinated how we operated and how we, you know, launched airplanes. And, and they, I think they dawned on them that they were still decades behind. They could build those ships. They could build mm -hmm. similar ships, probably not the same quality. Um, but it's the training piece that they find themselves behind. So as a nation, we have to be cognizant of, what it takes to counter not just the actual conflict that might or might not come, but how do we deter it from ever happening? And that's the conundrum because we have our, we are limited. We have res you know, resource limited in terms of funding and what we can spend and how much do we want to spend on it. And is that the right tactic? Is it a zero sum mm -hmm. game that you're only going to have one winner in the South China sea? And yeah. if that's, if that's the approach that there's a zero sum game, that you have one winner, one loser, that's kind of the path we're, we're on. And we have to then, prepare appropriately uh, i'd like to think at the diplomatic level we all win we figure out a way to negotiate we figure out a way to operate in the area together um and that's that's obviously hard because now you have personal yeah. people changing administrations and that's a much more complex thing so all the military can do is not worry about the politics of it just be as prepared as possible and ask for what they need which they do a pretty good job of doing that yeah. um but with an eye towards the chinese growth to your point which some point is uh, you know strength in numbers as they say and then they're approaching those points here pretty soon there you go you know they say that one of the reasons the ussr finally folded the old soviet government folded is when they watched us in iraq and they went holy shit these guys got cameras on bombs and shit like like why, why are we trying to keep up with these guys and uh, you know the one of the a few good things you can say about the Ukraine war, it's a horrific uh, thing that's killing civilians, um, is that it really exposed how bad their leadership is and their bad military. And hopefully China has taken a second look at that. I think they have and gone, eh, maybe, you know, like what we speak about here today and in your book, you know, the leadership and, and the way the U.S. government runs its military and, and trains and stuff over, you know, this, these last 250-odd years, um, you know, it, there really is something about it that's just more than the hardware of, well, we got a ship. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think any successful organization, whether it's military, corporate, or nonprofit, it takes good leadership. And that, and that sometimes yeah. makes the biggest difference. Leaders focused on the people as much as they are the product or the ship, as it were. 
Um, I, I think that's where, you know, our adversaries are paying attention to, but they're, they come from systems where it tends to be more hierarchical and decisions have to be made at the highest level. And that slows down, no matter how many ships you have or airplanes you have, it tends to slow down your ability to fight. And we're seeing that play out now in Ukraine, I think, with the Russians. And I think that the question then should be, you know, what does the South China Sea look like? How do they fight and where do they compare? And how do we make sure we're making decisions quicker and more effectively and therefore taking advantage of any kind of numerical inferior, you know, insecurity we have? I, if their numbers are greater. There, there you go. Well, I'm glad I got the U.S. military on my side because uh, uh, yeah. I, I, I don't think I want to fight anybody else. You know, I grew up, I grew up shaking under the desk, uh, you know, to protect me from nuclear war because that works, <laughs> right. those steel desks. Uh, yeah. I grew up with the USSR, and so to watch the U.S., the Russian military do its thing, I'm just like, seriously? I was scared of you in fourth grade, um, but there you go. Uh, my last question to you is, do you have a favorite book on uh, leadership? Is there a number one favorite or something you go back to for leadership to read? I, so I do Other than your own book. Right, right, yeah. Um, I, mean, I like McCraven's books. I think it's simple and they're easy to read and easy mm -hmm. to relate and, and easy. I can tell those stories on to my kids or my sons and stuff um, in a way it's applicable. I do like some of the, I mean, I do like some of the philosophy books with Marcus Aurelius and, you know, mm -hmm. I'm a, I love Ryan Holiday's Daily Stoic because sometimes yeah. when, you have, when you have a moment, you can pick it up and read one, one page. And, and so I think, I, I don't know that I have a favorite. I like to diversify, I guess, my reading, as they say, and my, my to be read pile is certainly much bigger than my, you know, it grows much quicker than I can keep up with it. <laughs> but, um, but I like, I, I, I do, I think I found a lot from reading some of the, from the, some of the philosophers we've discussed today, because I think there's there's amazing relevance today, many 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 years later, uh, yeah. and they're they're still applicable. I find that fascinating. It's fascinating too, because you read it, and you're like, Did, was he around right? Does he know what's going on right now? And yeah. you're like, wait, this is like Roman times. Like, oh, there you go. Uh, well, it's been an honor, sir, to have you on, and thank you for your service and everything that went on. I think it was just it was just a beautiful viral moment to see your your crew, uh, you know, give you a standing ovation and cheer you as you left the ship. And just the outpouring of love is, is a testament, I think, to your leadership, to how you're regarded by your people. And uh, certainly when I walked around uh, my business ships, no one gets up and, and claps. In fact, they usually throw eggs and tomatoes and stuff. So uh, I think it's just a testament to the, your, the quality of character that you have. And, and hopefully people will pick that up in the book, learn from it, and become better leaders. Thanks, Chris. Yeah, I enjoyed the chat today, and, and uh, it, was, it was certainly a fun book to write, and I hope people enjoy it. There you go. Uh, give us your .com so people can find you on the internet. Yeah, place, sir. it's um, uh, surfwhenyoucan.com, and, and then the book, you can order it now on Amazon or Borders or any major retailer as well, and the book comes out uh, June 13th. There you go. Order it up, folks, wherever fine books are sold. Surf When You Can, Lessons in Life, Loyalty, and Leadership from a Maverick. Navy captain available June 13th, 2023. Thanks to everyone for coming by the show. We certainly appreciate you. Go to goodreads.com for Chess Chris Foss, youtube.com for Chess Chris Foss, linkedin.com for Chess Chris Foss, and TikTok for the love of God. We're <laughs> trying to be cool over there. It's not working. Eh, no. They just look at us and go, you guys are kind of old and uncool. Yeah. And then we're just like, we're cool, but they're not buying it. <laughs> anyway, thanks for everyone for tuning in. Be good to each other. Stay safe, and we'll see you guys next time.